He uh, gave thanks for the turkey, the dressing, the fruit salad, the cranberry sauce, the pies, the cake, and even the Cool Whip. And then he paused. Everyone waited and waited. After a long silence, the uh, young fellow looked up at his mother and asked, If I thank God for the broccoli, won't he know I'm lying? I tell you that little story to ask you this question. How did you learn to pray? Think back for a moment. We don't all pray the same, do we? So how did you learn to pray? Was it from listening to your parents? Or or maybe it was your Sunday school teachers when you were a child? Usually we learn to pray from people who have modeled prayer for us. Who is your model for prayer? Maybe it was more than one person. See, uh, the reason I ask that question is because we're going to be talking about prayer of power. Now, especially in the South, we think of prayers of power differently than Christians have thought throughout much of Christian history. A a few years back, while I was pastoring another church, I had the privilege of uh, working with ten other churches in the community for the purpose of bringing a course to our local high school and middle school called uh, Bible in the Schools, as the students were taught kind of the history of the Bible, both New and Old Testament. During uh, the event, several of the pastors were asked to offer prayers of different aspects of the school and, and the new Bible class. I was asked to pray for our teachers following the senior pastor of a mid-sized and growing church in the neighborhood who uh, offered a prayer like this. And I give this to you as an example of uh, the kinds of prayer of power that uh, is quite common in the South. Uh, so this, is, this isn't exactly his prayer, but it's pretty close. Here's what it sounded like. I declare that the anointing of God break every yoke, open every portal, and assigned angels to reinforce me as I advance into new levels and new dimensions, new realms, and territory. I take the authority over demonic, satanic atmospheres and climates. I declare that it is now suitable for marriage relationships to thrive, for our children to thrive, our teachers to thrive, our businesses to thrive, our nation to thrive, our economy to thrive, and I establish a supernatural environment for miracles to occur. I decree and declare the works of darkness are destroyed. In the name of Jesus, I release the angels assigned to me to handle any satanic contentions. In the name of Jesus, I war for the releasing of finances and all resources that belong to me. I call in resources from the north, the south, the east, and the west. I decree and declare that every recourse necessary for me to fulfill the Lord's plans and purposes come to me without delay now. In the name of Jesus, I decree and declare that the wealth of the wicked is released now into my hands. Let those who hold on to my wealth no longer than they should be afflicted and tormented without relief until they release what rightfully belongs to me. I command Satan to cough it up, spit it out, loose it, release it, and let it go and restore everything he has taken sevenfold. I come against the spirit of deprivation, for the Lord prospers the works of my hand. 
Now, as you can tell, I don't think very highly of these kinds of prayers. These type of uh, triumphalistic, name it and claim it, prosperity gospel, gospel type of prayers and messages are, in my opinion, incompatible with the gospel. And I'd like to illustrate that by looking at the ultimate example of a power prayer as modeled by the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians. Now, I should point out that Paul does regularly pray for power. In fact, two weeks ago, we uh, saw Paul asking God for power for the Ephesians. You might remember when he said, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. See, now Paul is going to explain in greater detail what he means by God's incomparably great power. But before uh, we dive into the text, let me give you an illustration that I think will set the foreground of what I mean by by Paul's prayer of power here. And uh, I'm going to tell you this illustration by, uh, by a man named Lawrence, who was an African student who was taking a preaching class uh, here in the U.S. And he, uh, he got up to uh, preach one Sunday, and he chose a text describing the joys we'll share when Christ returns and ushers us to heaven. And he, wrote, he said these words, I've been in the United States for several months. I have seen the great wealth that is here, the fine homes and cars and clothes. I've listened to many sermons in churches here, too. But I've yet to hear one sermon about heaven. Because everyone has so much in this country, no one preaches about heaven. People here don't seem to need it. In my country, most people have very little. So we preach on heaven all the time. We know how much we need it. And then he asked, do you know how much you need it? He went on to say, you see, a man who has a layover at an airport doesn't go into the bathroom, frown at its decor, and start redecorating. Why? Because he doesn't live there. He has a home somewhere else. While, he, while he's away, he'll get by with only what he absolutely needs in order to have more money with which to furnish his permanent home. So why do we Christians work so hard at trying to make our life in this world more comfortable? This is just the airport, and we are in transit. We should spend our energy on enhancing our eternal reward and not worry so much about the bare walls in the airport restroom. He went on to say, let's invest our lives in what will really last and matter for all of eternity, and that is speaking and living out the gospel in the lives of others. See, The example I gave of that prosperity gospel preacher's prayer reflects a desire for power to receive worldly comfort, and not eternal values. So let's come back to this text this morning. And uh, the first point I want to make to you, uh, and that's the first point in your bulletin there, uh, in the outline, if you want to use the insert in your outline, and it's this, 2 Corinthians 
4, 16 through 18 is parallel to our passage in Ephesians. And the, the message is pray for God's mighty power within, the place that controls our character and prepares us for eternity. See, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul wrote this, Though outwardly, or literally the outer man, we are wasting away, yet inwardly, or literally in the inner man, which is the exact same expression that Paul uses in uh, verse 16 of our passage, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. See, Paul's point is pretty clear. Our bodies get older. They wear out. And it's true for every single one of us. Our physical strength and health fades. Our memories fade. But uh, then there's the other side of it. I've known many elderly saints that have been models of faithfulness, living with an inner spiritual strength that is hard to deny. So even as our bodies grow older and weaker, yet inwardly we Christians are being renewed day by day. So our ultimate hope includes resurrected bodies in the future, but until we receive that gift, it is our inner person that is being strengthened by God's power. In our culture, which is sadly is echoed by the types of prayers that I quoted from, the highest value is placed on good health and worldly wealth and success. But biblically, the highest value is placed on the area of our character, which is ultimately what prepares us for heaven. You know, uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 8, we are introduced to a guy named Simon the sorcerer. And he wanted the power of the Spirit so that he could manipulate people and have power in his community. And sadly, there are many who wish to use God's power so that they can have a better position over others to pursue health, wealth, and prosperity. Now back to your outlines. Point two on your outline is this. Never power in a triumphalistic sense. And uh, while I'm at it, let me give you number three. Sharing in Christ's sufferings, Philippians 3.10, is compatible with this kind of power that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 3. You see, Paul has already said that he wanted to experience more of the power of Christ's resurrection. But he had also said that he wanted to share more deeply in Christ's sufferings. As he writes in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. See, that's the key to understanding what it means to pray for more of God's power. Paul, Paul's words in our passage in verses 16 and 17 are this, I pray that out of His glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
Now let me see if I can uh, pause and ask and answer a question that you might be asking. Why does Paul pray for Christ to dwell in their hearts? Aren't they already Christians with Christ's spirit dwelling in them? Well, here's my answer. The Greek to dwell is a very strong one here. What Paul is praying for is that Christ will truly make their hearts his home. That while we're not to fix up the restrooms, Jesus is fixing us up as they trust him more deeply. Let me see if I can explain it from another illustration. Now, I don't like HGTV, but my wife loves it. There are lots of shows on there of people buying fixer-uppers and then spending a lot of money, time, and hard work to make that house their home. They'll uh, redo the kitchen, the bathrooms expand, put down new floors, the roof might leak, the wallpaper, of course, needs to be removed, and the walls need to be refinished and repainted. Now, on those shows, the work is usually done, uh, you know, very quickly. But in reality, that kind of work usually takes months or even years. We have uh, some friends that recently sold their home and they bought a fixer-upper. And since the husband is doing most of the work himself, while he also has a full-time job and a business to run, that, uh, they, that it's going to take years. It's going to take a lot of years. And many years later, they will have created the home that suits them. Everywhere they'll look, they'll see the results of their hard work. It's been shaped to their needs and their tastes. So too, when Jesus comes to live within us, now let's be honest here, he finds mounds of trash, bad wallpaper, toilets that don't don't flush, a leaky roof. So what does he do? He sets out to do the hard work of making it a place where he is comfortable. You know, uh, Let me give you another illustration. Frances Ridley Havergal suffered from very poor health, and she eventually went to be with the Lord at the age of 42. But the Lord blessed her ministry in many ways. She was a very gifted poet and musician whose work has now had impact on millions of Christians throughout the decades. One of her most well-known hymns, which we'll be singing at the end of our service, echoes Paul's thinking here. The words are, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be sweet and beautiful for thee. I won't quote the rest of the verses, we'll be singing them soon ourselves. You see, that's that's ultimately the prayer here. And let's be completely honest with ourselves for a moment. When God moves into our hearts, every portion of our lives needs serious rehab. And it takes a great deal of power and effort to change us. And so we need a great deal of prayer. Prayer for ourselves. Prayer for one another. Prayer for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ that they might be renewed on the inside, getting rid of the old trash, being renewed within by Christ's Spirit. 
that we might truly radiate the glory of Christ. So I'm asking you, I'm asking you to pray this kind of prayer for me and for each of us that we might pray those prayers for one another here at Parkway. That we might pray those prayers for others' parents, their grandparents, maybe their children, their grandchildren. See, we all need those prayers. Every single one of us. You know, as I was writing this sermon, I was reminded of a a silly little illustration of a pig and a chicken who were walking by a church where a gala charity event was taking place. And uh, they both got caught up in the spirit, and so the pig suggested to the chicken that they each make a contribution. Great idea, the chicken said. Let's offer them ham and eggs. Hey, not so fast, said the pig. For you, that's a contribution. For me, that's total commitment. See, we need prayer for one another that, will, that we will, in fact, live out the prayer of the pig more than the chicken. Total commitment. See, the Father who has already lavishly blessed us in His Son wishes to pour out on us the power of Christian maturity. God desires to do that. And so Paul pleads with God for this transforming power in the life of God's people at Ephesus. Paul prays for power to be holy, power to think, act, and speak in ways that please our Savior, power to walk in transparency before others and gratitude to God, the power to be humble but also discerning, the power to be obedient and conform more and more to the likeness of Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a prayer not just to believe the right things more deeply, but to be transformed by the truth and by God's love. And so we need to pray this for one another. We each need this. And this is summed up in point four on your outline. Pray prayers that your brothers and sisters in Christ might trust Jesus more deeply and that their hearts will become progressively more suitable to Christ. Now Paul doesn't stop here. He also prays that the Ephesians might receive the power to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Jesus. Look at those verses with me. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have the power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And this is point five on your outline. We need to pray for maturity for ourselves and others and pray that we together might grow in grace and love. You see, Paul's not saying that the Ephesians have never really known God's love for them in Jesus Christ. No, he knows they're Christians and that they are rooted and established in love, as he puts it. He knows that their salvation is dependent on God's sovereign love. But he knows that they do not fully grasp that love. 
He wants them to have the power to grasp it more and more deeply each day. See, it's not a prayer that they should love Jesus more, although that is a fine prayer to pray. But rather, it is a prayer that we and they might grasp Christ's love for us progressively more. He's praying not only that they might intellectually and emotionally understand Christ's love, but also experience this kind of love. This is a very Hebrew way of thinking. This isn't some sort of vague spirituality, but it's rooted entirely in the gospel and the person and work of Jesus Christ. As the psalmist put it, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 73. See, the kingdom of God isn't a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, as Paul writes in Romans 14. Paul's language here in the Greek isn't about just intellectually grasping the depths of this love, but in experiencing that love more and more. How do we do that? See, I, uh, I love my wife deeply, and she knows it intellectually, but if that was as far as it went, we wouldn't have a very good marriage. So too, we might have an intellectual grasp of Christ's love. But if we're not emboldened by that love, if we're not empowered to step out daily trusting in that love, we will never experience the depth of that love. So as we pray for ourselves and others to know Christ's love more deeply, we're, what we're, praying, we're also praying point six on your outline, that they might risk and step out in boldness in that love so that we together might truly experience that love more deeply. We, uh, we need Christ's boldness. And as we grow deeper roots in his love, we experience that boldness. During uh, his years as premier of the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev denounced many of the policies and atrocities of his predecessor, Joseph Stalin. Once, as he was censuring Stalin in a public meeting, Khrushchev was interrupted by a shout from a heckler in the audience. Hey, you were one of Stalin's colleagues. Why didn't you stop him? Khrushchev turned, and he yelled out, Who said that? An agonizing silence followed as nobody in the room dared move a muscle. Then Khrushchev replied quietly, Now you know why. We are called to step forward in faith with courage, knowing that God's loving kindness and the power of his presence are always with us. And so we need to take risks, risks in showing holy love and kindness to our enemies, that we too might experience more deeply Christ's love for us. And we need to pray for that. We must pray for that. Because we need the power of God so that we can experience and appreciate more of the love of Jesus Christ. The love of the one who died on the cross in our place that he might redeem us from the power of sin 
and death. And Paul wants us to grasp that love, that we might together be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God, to be all that God desires you and I to be. We can't be as spiritually mature as we ought to be unless we receive the power from God to enable us to know the limitless love of Jesus and then to step out in boldness in that love. Love has the power to transform us. Dr. Perry Downs was one of my professors in a Ph.D. program I was in several years ago. As I got to know him, I soon learned that he and his wife would take children into their home and keep them until they could be placed permanently in loving homes. One day he received a call from the agency, and the agency said, we want you to keep two twin boys. And he and his wife said, we've never kept twins before. How old are they, and how long are we going to keep them? Well, they're 18 months and we'd like for you to keep them just for six weeks. Well, okay, as long as it's just for six weeks, send them on over. It turned out that those little boys had been in nine different homes in their first 18 months. And they'd been severely abused in most of them, having been abandoned by their parents. The first night that they put those little boys down, they didn't hear a sound. Perry and his wife were curious, so they went into the room and they found the boys in the bed, weeping uncontrollably, but they were muffling the sounds of their cries in the pillows, because in some of the previous homes, they had been beaten when they cried. The psychologist told them that these children would never, ever be psychologically and emotionally normal and whole. They were irremediably affected by their experiences. Those boys ended up staying with them two years. Two years later, a home was found for those twins. And the social worker who provided the psychological analysis before the boys were sent to to that new home said this, Inexplicably, And miraculously, these boys are now normal, having experienced the love of a family that cared. Those boys had come to know love, and it had transformed them. And so, if imperfect human love has that power, how much more does God's perfect, limitless love have the power to transform us. And so the final point, seven on your outline, is we on our own want power so that we can be in control. But Paul prays for power so that we will be controlled by God. See, the main problem with us as humans is that we are pathetically self-centered, and I'm talking about myself right now. That's why it takes the power of God to transform us. If we're to know the love of Jesus that surpasses the knowledge and grow to the maturity that God desires for us. 
that when we truly experience and grow deeper roots in the love of Jesus, we will find that relationships of true repentance and true forgiveness and reconciliation become natural for us because we know more deeply how much we have been forgiven. Troubles and sorrows don't drive us to despair because we remember what Paul said, who shall shall separate us from the love of Christ? Our speech, our thoughts, our actions and reactions, our relationships, our goals, our values will become progressively transformed as we boldly step out in the love of Jesus Christ. And this is to be done together. As Paul, here look with me, as Paul prayed, he said, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp that immeasurable love. I like the way John put it here in summary. It needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord of love, we will never on this side of heaven fully comprehend your love. But the truth is, is we need to grow and grow more deeply in your love. We each need it. We need to pray for one another in this way. We need to pray that we will each grow more deeply in your love. We need to pray for boldness to step out in that love and experience that love when we risk when we risk for the sake of others and for the sake of your love when we risk possibly losing friendships when we tell people about you and about your love Lord Jesus your love is amazing It abounds to us more and more. And Lord, we pray for each other this morning. We pray for maturity and that we might grow together more deeply in your love. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you now to stand with me as we'll be uh, singing that song, Take My Life.